Welcome to Closer to Christ, the sermon podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church and The Bridge in Muskego, Wisconsin. You can learn more about our ministries at stpaulmuskego.org. And now for this week's message. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text today comes from 2 Samuel. In your pure Bible, it's on page 310. I'm not going to be reading the entire chapter. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 12, really details for us the prophet Nathan coming to King David after he had sinned in his adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband Uriah. The middle of the text, which is really what I'm going to be using today, is the whole deal of how we manage the regret in our life. So um, you want to have Second Samuel 12 open in your pew Bible. Be aware of the first part of the chapter, but now I'm going to read from verses 13 through 25. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. They gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, be present now. Our hearts in true devotion bow. 
Your Spirit send with grace divine, and let your truth within us shine. Amen. I'm convinced that most, if not all of us, live our lives under the mistaken notion that being forgiven in Christ, everything in our life should go back to the way it was before. In other words, that there should be no painful consequences to our sinful actions. The truth of the matter is we do reap what we sow, even with the forgiveness of sins. In fact, we may spend the rest of our life dealing with the consequences of some past sin. Some examples. The repentant alcoholic may have to live the rest of his life with cirrhosis of the liver. The repentant adulterer may have to live his or her life with a broken marriage and a broken family. The repentant abuser may have to go through life separated from an estranged child. Are there consequences for sin that you are suffering right now? Are you suffering because of what your parents or even a previous generation did wrong? Are your children or grandchildren suffering for sins that you committed? Let's approach this from a different angle. What sin do we most regret? If we could write a letter to our younger self, what would we want to change? A folly-filled summer? A month off track? A day gone bad? What if there were a box filled with videotapes of every moment of our life? Which tape or tapes would we want to see burned? Do we live with regret? Do we want a do-over? King David did. David had seduced and impregnated Bathsheba. David had murdered her husband Uriah. David had deceived his general and his soldiers. Then he married the woman. She bears the child. The cover-up seems complete. The casual observer detects no cause for concern. David has a new wife and a happy life. All seems well on the throne. But all is not well in David's heart. Guilt simmers, and it simmers hot. It's like turning the dial for your stove burner up to 10. David, later in his life, recounts this time of impenitence when he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David's soul languished in guilt and regret. He cannot escape his sin. Why? Because God keeps bringing it up. In the last verse of the previous chapter of 2 Samuel, we are told the thing David had done displeased the Lord. With these words, God introduces himself to the story. So far, he's been absent from the account. So far, he's been unmentioned in the text. David seduces, no mention of God. David plots, no mention of God. Uriah buried and Bathsheba married, no mention of God. God is not spoken to, nor does he speak. But God is still the invisible guest at every meal and the silent listener to every conversation. A casual reading of these verses lures us into a false or faulty conclusion. We're told, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Bathsheba decorates the nursery. She picks names out of the baby book. Nine months pass. A son is born. And we conclude that David has dodged a bullet, that God has turned a blind eye to his sin. You know, boys will be boys. But just when we think that, and just when David hopes that, God makes his appearance. He steps out and takes center stage. God will be silent no more. God sends Nathan to David. David is a prophet, a preacher, sort of like a White House chaplain. And he tells David a story. Now, Nathan knows what has happened between David and Bathsheba. Nathan knows what David has done to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. But he still goes to the king. To the king, mind you. And in the first half of chapter 12, we have this story that Nathan tells. There's a man, very poor, who has only a single ewe lamb to his name. I would imagine that David instantly connects, for remember, he was a shepherd before he became king. Nathan tells how special this little ewe lamb was to David, or to the poor man. The lamb eats from his lap. The lamb is very special to him. This little ewe lamb was all that the poor man had. Then there's this rich guy down the street living on an estate, and he gets a visitor one day. And so what has to happen? A big feast, a big meal. But this rich guy doesn't take one of his own sheep from all of his flocks. He takes this poor man's pet ewe lamb. 
He sends his bodyguards. They pull up on the young man's property. They snatch the lamb and fire up the barbecue. Now, if we were there, couldn't we see the hair rising up on David's neck? Couldn't we see him as he grabs the arms of his throne? He's irate. And he pronounces a sentence on this rich man without giving him a fair trial. The man who has done this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David never saw it coming, did he? He never saw Nathan erecting the gallows and throwing the rope up over the beam. He never feels Nathan tying his hands behind his back, leading him up the steps and placing him squarely over the trap door. It isn't until Nathan squeezes the noose around David's neck. It isn't until he tightens the rope with these four short three-letter words, you are the man that David gets it. His face pales. The Adam's apple on his neck begins to bob. A bead of sweat forms on his forehead. He slinks back on the throne. He makes no defense. He offers no response. David has nothing to say. <laughs> But God does. God has a lot to say. God's just getting started. Through Nathan, he says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his own wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Oh, God's heart is bleeding here. His words don't reflect hate, but hurt. They're not words of belittlement, but words of bewilderment. David, what have you done? Your flocks fill the hills, but you stole. Your palace is filled with beauty. Why take from someone else? Why would you, so wealthy and so blessed, do such a thing? David has no excuse. So God speaks again. God levies a sentence on David. We might say he pronounces a consequence of David's sin. God says, Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. 
You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. A consequence of David's sin. God says that from this day forward, turmoil and trial and tragedy will mark David's family. And they do. Rebellious Absalom isn't just a thorn in David's side. He hunts him down trying to kill him. Surrounding nations will now doubt God's holiness. David had soiled God's reputation. He had blemished God's honor. And God, who is jealous for his glory, must punish David's public sin in a public way. The child dies. After seven long, heartbreaking days and nights, the child dies. This mighty king of Israel discovers the painful truth of God's powerful law. Be sure that your sin will find you out. My friends, the unconfessed sins of our past will not leave us alone. They will surface like painful boil on the skin of our neck. Can our God idly sit by as sin poisons his children? When I was in grade school, one of my older brothers developed this painful boil on the back of his neck. Poisonous pus came out of this boil like a tiny Mount St. Helens. My mom, a mother of nine, knew just what to do with this boil. A good squeezing, two thumbs in the morning, and a thumb and a finger at night. The more mom squeezed, the louder Tim screamed. But my mom wasn't going to stop until the pit or the seed of that boil had popped out. Now, I'm sorry for being so graphic, but I need to press the point. You think my mom was tough? Try the hands of God. Unconfessed sin sits on our heart like a poisonous, festering boil. And our God, with tender thumbs and fingers, will apply pressure. Listen to what God says. The way of the unfaithful, that is the impenitent in this context, leads to their destruction. God says, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap evil and trouble. Can a mother stand by and do nothing as toxins invade her child? Can God sit idly by as sin poisons his? No. God will not rest until we do what David did, confess our sin. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, 
the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. As I worked through this text, I found such great comfort that while David had sentenced the rich man in Nathan's parable to death, our God is much, much more merciful. God put David's sin away. God lifted that sin up and he put it away. If we had sung today's psalm, we were privileged by hearing the first and fifth graders sing. This is what we would have sung, a psalm of David. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. My friends, take that sin from the past that you so desperately regret and lay it before the cross of Jesus. Let God handle it. Let God pardon it. Let him put it away. It took David a year. It took a surprise pregnancy. It took the death of a soldier. It took the persistence of a prophet. It took the probing and pressing hand of God, but David's heart was finally softened that he could confess, I have sinned against the Lord. And don't miss what God did. No rosary to pray. No indulgences to buy. No right things to do. He simply took David's sin and put it away. As he does with yours and mine. Which brings us all back to where we started, right? What sin do you most regret? If you could sit down and write a letter to your younger self, what would you want to change? A betrayal? A backstabbing? A bluff gone bad? If there were a box of videotapes detailing every moment of your life, which tape or tapes would you want burned? How does the sin of your past hound you? How does it make you wish that it could be different? It's time for you to put that thought to rest. Assemble a party of three people. You, your God, and your memory. Place the mistake and the memory at the foot of the cross. Let God handle it. Let God pardon it. Let God remove that from your list of regrets. Where our text goes today is to detail for us what David was doing while his son lay ill for seven days and then what he did after his son died. And I've listed these things for you both on the screens and in your worship folder to help you as you deal with the regrets in your life. This is what David did. He rejoiced in the forgiving word he heard from Nathan. He acknowledged the painful consequences of his sin. 
He fervently sought the Lord in prayer. He humbly submitted himself to God's will, and he recognized and received God's gracious blessing. Our text concludes, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. David and Bathsheba named their new son Solomon, a word that means peace. You think maybe this was David's way of expressing that he now had a new and restored relationship with the Lord? God certainly had great plans for the baby, for it was through this baby, Solomon, and his family line that David's Savior and your Savior, and my Savior would eventually come. Dear younger self, when I'm tempted to look back and say, if I only could change the past, lead me to put aside my arrogance, to thank God for the forgiveness of my sin, and humbly and boldly to trust his promise and power, his goodness and guidance to lead me forward in life. Amen. Now the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Closer to Christ sermon podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church and The Bridge in Muskego, Wisconsin. Closer to Christ podcasts are from our current sermon series and are released every Monday morning. For live stream services and other ministry information, please visit us online at stpaulmuskego.org.